Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Okay, the last few weeks I've been talking about uh, Christmas and Advent and how Jesus gives us reason to hope. And last week, Jesus gives us reason to wonder. And this week, I want to talk about how Jesus gives us reason to rest. And I'm going to use what, what might be the most familiar um, of the passages from the Christmas story. From Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town, or from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him at the inn. I don't know about you, when I hear this passage, one face comes to mind and it's Linus from Peanuts. Uh, Sweet, gentle, quiet with his blanket, Linus is the one that comes to mind because I've probably watched a Charlie Brown Christmas every year of my entire life, you know, and it's a great scene, and I'm glad it's in there, and we still watch that uh, every single year. I think Luke, if he were here, the face that he would want us to see is probably this one. He wants us to see Rocky and to think Rocky. I would, my hope is that for you and for me forevermore, when we hear this passage, that the, the theme music from Rocky would start playing somewhere, echoing in the back of our minds. The dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. This is, I think this is the second time I've done that in a sermon this year, and I, I honestly can't remember what, what the sermon was the first one. So if you remember that, you can text me right now, and you will get a Pastor Gold Star for remembering that. But it's, it's, that's what he wants. Uh, Luke is setting up a scene. He is setting up tension in the scene with the way that this is laid out between Caesar and Jesus. It's like, and it's like a Rocky thing. He's like saying, in this corner, Caesar Augustus, you know, like the ruler of the entire world weighing in at a million pounds, whatever you might say, he's conquered empires, all that. That's Caesar. That's who we've got in this corner. And in this corner, we've got little baby Jesus, sick eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus in his swaddling clothes, no room in the end uh, for him born in a manger. And he's setting it up uh, saying, this is the one that everybody thinks has ultimate power. And this one is the one that actually has ultimate power. And, you know, the rest of his story is going to show you why that is the case and how it happened. We, um, we can view our political leaders as messiahs, and maybe more and more we're doing that, or maybe we've always done that, and it just seems like we're doing it more and more now, but Caesar, like, literally was referred to as a messiah, as a savior. One of his titles was Imperator Caesar Divi Filius Augustus, Commander Caesar, Son of God, the Venerable Augustus was a religious designation, meaning illustrious one, and they believed it gave him authority over humanity and over nature. There's an inscription that was found about Caesar Augustus 
it's a divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, because Julius Caesar was a god, imperator of land and sea, I don't even know what an imperator is, benefactor and savior of the whole world. One of the sayings of the time was there's no other name under heaven by which people can be saved but that of Caesar. Uh, it's political. That's who Luke is talking about. And it's, it's, he's not making this up. It's actual history. Luke is an historian recording actual history. He doesn't start this, you know, like Star Wars. A long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there was this mythical figure that had all power named Caesar. No, this is an actual guy. And he's saying, remember when Caesar took that census, the one when Quirinius was the governor of Syria? That's when all this stuff happened. As an historian, he's putting his name on it and saying this is exactly when all of this stuff happened. And from his perch in Rome, Caesar Augustus could tell Joseph and Mary, you're going to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem just so that I can count you and get some information. You are pawns on my chessboard and I can move you wherever I want to. That was, that was power. I mean, imagine that now. The census is, I guess, like a really controversial thing because um, voting districts are determined by the census numbers and tax funds somehow are determined by the census numbers. And, but they send us, you know, they send you things in the mail and they come to your door and they kind of beg you to give them the information. Imagine if you know, one of the many times that my wife was nine months pregnant, they said, you need to go from Raleigh, North Carolina to Heartland, Wisconsin, just so we can count you. <laughs> like, we can't get people to wear masks now. There's no way people are doing that. Uh, he has power that we can't really fathom, and it's a movement from the powerful to the powerless. So you've got Caesar, who's got the whole world in his hands, and then Mary and Joseph at his beck and call. And uh, Luke and Matthew, when he records the birth of Jesus, just, they let us know just how far down the totem pole Mary and Joseph are. When they go to the temple to make the offering for Jesus, they offer a turtle dove, which is telling us they were dirt poor. Um, this is where Jesus starts. There's no room for them at the inn. So Luke is setting up Jesus as we love an underdog story. He is the ultimate underdog. Jesus, he makes it from heaven to earth. But he makes it here seemingly by the skin of his teeth under a cloud of suspicion to this young couple conceived of the Holy Spirit under the thumb of the powers that be and no one even notices that he's arrived and there's no room for him at the end. We're in an article by a British theologian, historian, bishop named N.T. Wright. He said, anyone who knows the history and culture of the first century Jewish world would see the point. Matthew introduces his Christmas story by listing Jesus' ancestry all the way back to Abraham, highlighting King David on the way. And it's obvious where this was going. Jesus is the true king of the Jews at a time where there was one of those already, Herod the Great. The same is true with Luke's story, in which the Roman emperor, the self-styled son of God, Augustus himself, issues an order in Rome which causes a very different son of God to be born in a very different royal city, Bethlehem. The original, he says, the, re the original historic Christmas stories are about power. They're about power. They're about the kingdom of God breaking dangerously and unexpectedly into the kingdoms of this world. Our culture has downgraded the Christmas stories into sweet little songs and primary school nativity plays, but the birth of a baby who will inherit the throne of his ancestor David announces the start of a revolution. Nothing will ever be the same 
again. Uh, so that's the birth of Jesus, and he brings peace. Isaiah says he is the prince of peace. He is meant to bring peace. So how does the birth of Jesus bring peace and rest to us? What disrupts your soul? What causes you the most anxiety? Uh, I thought about a few things this week, and one of the things I thought about is the future. I think the future like creates great anxiety in us and in me, and I know it's true in me. I thought about how I could go, go back any given week, month, year. I probably got a list of things in the future that are creating anxiety in my soul in the present. You know, things like I'm just not sure how it's going to work out. Is that next week, next month, next year? I think if I went back six months and I had that list, I would look at the things that I was concerned about six months ago, and they would probably be resolved. You know, but we are, I know I am, and I talk to enough of you to know that I'm not alone in this. We are like experts in finding the next thing to be worried about. Like as soon as one gets resolved, it seems like instantaneously another one comes up. It's like the whack-a-mole thing at the fair where you, you pound one down and then this one pops up. And you're like, God, and then another one pops up. And that's how we are with anxieties in the future. I became convinced years ago that everyone has a good old days, and the good old days are only good in, in our understanding of them because we survived them. Because in those days, we had anxiety about the future that said we might not make it through the present, but we made it through that time, and so they become the good old days, and we kind of lament, we're nostalgic for that time, if we could just go back to that time. For me, I'm a child of the 80s. I think the 80s were probably the greatest dec decade in the history of the, of the world, you know? So those are kind of the good old days for me, they were, they were really, really hard for me. I mean, my folks split up in the 80s. That was really, really hard. You know, I went through middle school. That was hard. Puberty, that's hard. Like, there were hard things that happened in the 80s. But I look back and think, man, you know, that was great. And there were great things. Like, I met Jesus in the 80s and became a Christian and started following him. Um, my senior year of high school was in the 80s. That was a lot of fun. And my freshman year in college, two really fun years in the 80s. There was some great music, Come On Eileen, Dexie's Midnight Runners, some great movies, Rocky IV. There you go. We won the Cold War in the 80s, and probably because of Rocky IV, the Russians saw that, said, we can't beat this. So, that, like, we look back and think, man, it's great, but it's because we made it. And it's, it's tied to our anxiety about the future. So the future disrupts our soul. Uh, likewise, I think the past disrupts our soul. I think for all of us, there are things that, that we think about, decisions that we've made, or decisions that were made for us, or things that were done to us, um, that, that have affected our present and our future, and there's nothing now that we can do about those things. Uh, the older my kids get, the more I wonder the more I evaluate myself as a dad and wonder if I've done enough. My kids are like sprinting towards the door, you know? Like it's just things seem to be speeding up. And so I start thinking, and I think I've been a pretty conscientious dad. I think I've, you know, sacrificed time and other things to, to be a good dad to my kids, but you could always do more. And honestly, it's, it kind of induces a mild panic in my soul. <laughs> I think, could I have done better? Um, as a dad, and I think we all have these things. You know, I don't have a lot of things I look back on decisions with regret, but there are a lot of what ifs, you know. Um, and, and you just can't, you can't help it. For me, one of them was, and I love what I do, but 
Uh, I, I thought about going to the Air Force Academy and trying to fly a plane, and, and I still want to fly a plane. But, they, but I, the other, I was, just a few months ago, I was talking to someone who, um, they either went there or had a kid that went there in the same time that I would have gone there, and they said, yeah, when you would have graduated in the early 90s, they weren't looking for any pilots, so almost nobody got to fly a plane. And it induced like a sense of relief in me that that wasn't such a bad decision. My point being, like we all look back on things uh, in our past, and we, we, they can induce some unrest in our souls. They can disrupt our souls uh, in the present. You know, you wonder what would have happened if you'd taken a different path. You can wonder about relationships that you kind of let go or they went south, and, and it seems like they're beyond fixing them now or circumstances beyond your control. So the, the future or the past and then the present. Obviously, there are things right now that disrupt your peace. COVID <laughs> disrupts your peace. The elections uh, may disrupt your peace. Buying Christmas presents, they may, they may you know, disrupt your peace. Uh, I buy Christmas presents for one person, and she makes herself really easy to buy Christmas presents for, but it still makes me nervous every year. And her birthday is the next week, and so I got to buy a lot of stuff at the same time, and I don't feel like I'm good at it. So all that stuff can disrupt this. If you're Jewish and you read this passage the way that Luke has written it, you see the future, you see the past, and you see the present. And he pre- Luke presses all those buttons. When you think about the future and you're Jewish and you're reading this passage, you look at the stranglehold that Caesar Augustus has on your world and on the world and how his power and his influence is growing. And you see no future. You see no way out of that. You know, you've got a Jewish king, but it's a Jewish king that has to be approved by the Roman government. So it's a Roman king. It's the one that they want in charge. And you don't, this future just doesn't look promising for Israel. And Luke doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't say, you know, things weren't so bad and then Jesus showed up. He's saying things were horrible when Jesus showed up. They see the, they see the past in this passage. He talks about the, the lineage, the heritage of King David. And that's very intentional because King David was the ultimate glory days king for Israel. Uh, King David was after they had come out of Egypt, gotten to the promised land, were there for a few hundred years, got a king. The first king wasn't very good, but David, man, he was their king. He is the guy that defeated all their, he defeated Goliath, anointed by Samuel, defeats all their enemies, give them, gives them peace on all sides. And then God says to David, one of your sons, someone in your line, is going to have a reign that never ends. There is a promised king, and that's part of the promise of the Messiah that's being fulfilled in Jesus. And Luke is saying, this little baby is the king that was promised to David. And they're like, no way. (laughs) There's just no way that that can be true. So they look back on their past in this passage, and they have to ask, like, how did it get? We We were, like, had a bright future. How did it get here? I don't know if you've ever lamented what you were supposed to be like your unfulfilled potential. Have you ever thought all the good opportunities have passed me by? Well, that's certainly what this evoked in um, the Israelites. And then the present, there's no room at the end. Uh, Mary and Joseph were living hand to mouth. They had to wonder how they're going to make it just through tomorrow. So Luke paints this bleak, hopeless scene full of anxiety that just seems impossible. Uh, Have you been there? Are you there right now? This is, this is really right here. This is the only thing I'm going to say out of this. This is the point. This is it, um, what's been leading up to it and what comes after it. Rest does not come from increasing your ability to control your circumstances. 
Your soul will not rest because you gain the ability to control your circumstances. Rest comes from increasing your faith that God is the one that is ultimately in control of your circumstances. Rest doesn't come from you increasing your ability to control your circumstances. Rest comes from increasing your faith that God is the one that is in control of your circumstances. You cannot get enough control. It's just not humanly possible for you to gain enough control over your, you'll never have enough control over your circumstances to really give your soul the rest that it wants. And Luke is writing this in light of not just the birth, but the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he is saying that Jesus demonstrates that God is the one has, that has ultimate control over everybody's circumstances. And God knows exactly what he's doing. Paul writes to the Galatians, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness at just the right time, God waited until the perfect moment. When Caesar Augustus was the one in charge and looked like he had everything right where he wanted it to, he brings in Jesus just the way that he wants to, to show that he is the one that is ultimately in control and he knows exactly what's going on. We, I, you, we just live our lives, our heart, when you look into them, say that the first of those things that I said are true, that rest is going to come when we get enough control over our circumstances, then our hearts will be able to rest. We strive in so many different ways to gain enough control that peace will come. And we're, we're just going down the wrong path. You know, money. In our culture, and maybe for all cultures, we think if we just had enough money, then we could control our future. And, and it's just not true. It's just there's not enough money to have enough control. I mentioned this a few weeks ago where um, I quoted some guys saying that if you have money, you can like eliminate some of your problems or make them not as bad. But you can't make yourself happy and you really can't eliminate the biggest problems that can come to you. It doesn't give you control. Money is a litmus test for your spirituality. It's a litmus test of whether or not you really believe that God is in control because we have so much hope that if we had enough money that we could control our future. And God says, I'm the one that gave it to you in the first place. Give me your first fruits as a way of surrendering and, can, and like rem remembering that he is the one at all times uh, that is in control. We think if we control our relationships, we are... Uh, I mean, many of us, passive-aggressive or manipulative in our relationships, that if we think if we can control another person, then, you know, that'll bring rest to our souls. And so we're controlling in so many ways in our relationships. If we could control our time, if we had more margin, if we had better control over our schedule, then we could bring rest to our, school, our souls. If we, if we could control our body, um, if we were in physically better shape or if we weren't sick, if our health was better, then we'd be in control. If I had a better job or if I was the boss, if I was the one in charge at my job, um, then my soul would rest. And Luke is saying everybody thought Caesar was in control. And here's this little baby born on the margins of an empire, and he is about to turn the whole thing upside down, and nobody, nobody knew about him. And nobody knew it was coming except God. Caesar wasn't in control. He isn't in control. 
God is in control. And time after time in the Bible, just time after time after time after time after time, this second message, that rest comes by increasing our faith, that God is the one that is ultimately in control. And that is really good news for us. We see it time after time in the Bible from the beginning to the end. At the very beginning, we get a scene in Genesis chapter 1 where the, you know, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters and there was darkness. And so he, there's chaos. That represents chaos. And he speaks order in those seven days. He speaks order into that chaos. And that's how we feel. It's so simple. That's how we feel. That's what brings unrest to our souls as we look around and all we see is chaos. And God is the one that is going to be able to bring order into that chaos. So many of the stories in the Bible and the individuals in the Bible are God letting things get totally out of control to show that he is the one that's in control. Abraham, rich guy, has his family, has things going on. God says, leave all that. Leave your family. Go to a place you've never been to before where you're a complete stranger. And I'm going to do something amazing. Let things get out of control and I'll show you I'm in control. Uh, Joseph, like things were out of control his entire life, you know, and, uh, and at the end, God shows how he was weaving that together, and he was in control of the entire thing. Moses, um, his life, you know, should have, he was out of control, and he ends up in the desert, and God says, go back there and speak to Pharaoh, and he says, there's no way this is going to work, and God says, just trust me, I'm in control. David, um, the same, he's running from Saul in the desert, and God says, I'm the one that's ultimately in control. Daniel and the lion's den in exile in Babylon, and yet God is the one through those prophetic visions that he has, says, I am the one that's ultimately in control, and I will bring order into what seems like chaos to you. When uh, the Apostle John writes his gospel, um, and it's a different, it's, he doesn't give kind of the narrative account, Mary and Joseph, but he starts with the words in the beginning. So he goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and, and brings your mind to that. And he, and he says there was darkness and the light came into the darkness and the darkness couldn't overcome it. The order came into the chaos and God is the one that's ultimately in control. And that's what's going to bring rest to our souls is when we increase our faith that God is the one that's ultimately in control, and we don't have to be. One of the things that came to my mind this week was um, the passage from Philippians chapter 4 about anxiety and prayer. And this may be the first ver verse that I have, passage that I ever memorized when I became a Christian as a teenager. And I memorized it in a different passage, but it was, Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And this week, I noticed something about that passage I'd never noticed before, just never thought about. And this is a combination of, you know, like I'm, I'm not real good at this stuff, but, but also like you need to keep reading your Bible because God will keep speaking to you like in new ways through the same words in different circumstances in your life. And so what I noticed this week is that Paul's command is, you know, bring this stuff to God. Bring your anxieties to the Lord in prayer. By prayer and petition, like keep asking with thanksgiving, which is counterintuitive, in the midst of the chaos, thank him uh, for things. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, you bring this stuff to, to God by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, and then God is going to do what you asked him to do, 
uh, which would really be you being in control and not God being in control, but God's going to answer your prayer and your circumstances are going to change and then you'll have peace. He doesn't say anything about your circumstances getting any better. He says, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, you bring this stuff to God and then there is a peace which transcends all understanding and it will guard your hearts and minds. Well, what's it going to guard your hearts and minds from? Probably the anxiety that you're going to feel because he hasn't changed your circumstances right away because he's in control and you're not in control. And it's going to transcend all understanding because your circumstances haven't changed and everything looks like chaos, but you're acting like it's not. And you can be at peace in the midst of it. And everybody around you is going, like, why are you so peaceful when everything seems to be falling apart? And it's because God has done something and you have confidence that God will do something and he is the one that's ultimately in control. And that's, that may be the key to that passage. You know, that may be the key to the rest that you can experience in the midst of the chaos. And then I looked at the passages around that and how it starts uh, right before that. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. It's the presence of God that will, will take away our anxieties. And then right after it, he says, finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, in the midst of the chaos, look for these things. Dwell on these things. Like, don't worry about that stuff because God's got that. Dwell on the things that, he, that he's done and what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Someone has said that prayer is the place where your burdens change hands, you know, from your hands to God's hands. And it's why we need to spend so much time in prayer, because that's not always easy to do. And Peter writes, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. And man, that summarizes the whole thing. There is the mighty hand of God who is in control of all things. And it is his timing, and it's not our timing, when what seems like chaos turns to what seems like order to us. Uh, but he's the one that's ultimately in control of those things. And cast your anxieties on him because he loves you and he cares for you. Let him carry those anxieties and you rest and that you have this good father who has sent Jesus from heaven to earth, who has lived the perfect life, who has died a death in our place, and who has risen from the dead to show us he has control over the ultimate circumstance, which is death. And place your hope in him and wonder about him and find rest in that reality. I found an article from um, another pastor that stuck out to me. He, uh, he talked about things being out of control in his life and and some of you will really relate to this. Uh, his, it, he had a son born, and it turned out he had hemophilia, so his blood didn't clot. And that can be obviously a really anxiety-inducing situation, especially when you're a parent. And it's not you, but it's, it's your kid, and there's nothing you can do about it. And so he said, little did I know at the time, but this was the start of a great adventure. In coming months and years, this journey would take us through dark moments of despair. And in a strange, ironic way, it would lead to joy. It would thrust us into the crucible of faith where we'd have to believe what we believe. 
and in the silence of prayer would mediate peace that surpasses understanding. Bewildered and broken, we would glimpse into the Pauline paradox, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And he talks about a time when a missionary uh, came and spoke at his chapel when he was in seminary. And he said the missionary had us on the edge of our seats with stories. The guy was a missionary in Africa. Stories of angry tribal warriors coming into his compound with weapons drawn and violence in their eyes. Somehow, on account of the inexplicable appearance of fog, he and his family managed to escape. He then announced that through such experiences, he had learned a valuable lesson about the Christian life. He said to understand the Christian life, imagine riding a bicycle in the middle of a two-way street heading up a steep hill. Your job is to keep the bicycle wheels on the yellow line and keep pedaling. If you veer to the left or to the right with cars zipping past you on both sides, you're roadkill. As you get further up the hill, the forces of gravity and fatigue make pedaling all the more difficult. He said, so get it out of your head that the elderly people go on a spiritual cruise control. The challenge continues until the end, and there's no reprieve until we finally arrive home. The missionary concluded, of course, we do veer off the yellow line every single day. And when we do, Jesus' victory, the cross, resurrection, and pouring out of the Spirit provides forgiveness and healing. But we are nevertheless called to pedal. When our legs feel shot and we're unable to proceed, we pray for divine strength and somehow it comes. This is God's promise. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. In some ways, this passage and Christmas in general isn't meant to give us answers. It's meant to create tension and to cause us to ask questions and then to marvel at the answers that we have in the hindsight of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. How is this baby with nothing going for him going to turn the whole world upside down? No one saw this story coming. A vulnerable childhood, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, uh, bringing healing and miracles, the brilliance of his teaching, the lack of any formal political or military power, the recruitment of a ragtag band of followers who prove that God's power is made perfect in our weakness, his unjust death at the hands of lawless men, his resurrection three days later, and his commissioning of the church to carry on the work of the gospel. And not right away, but a couple centuries later, which is when you look at the development of world religions, a light speed, that emperor, not that emperor, but the successor to that emperor, is going to bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. Christmas is, is not like the Victory Day. In, the, in, in, in World War II terms, it's not Victory Europe Day. You know, it's more like Normandy where we land on the beaches and you know that the end is coming. Or maybe even Pearl Harbor because things look so bad. Uh, the empty tomb is the Victory Day when we realize we've won the war. But this is a reminder that when things started, it looked really bleak. And this is the consistent message that we hear throughout the Bible. You are not in control. I am, and that's good news for you. It's the first thing that we see God do in Genesis. It's the last thing that we see God do in Revelation is he brings resolution to the story. Before Jesus leaves, he says to his disciples, peace I leave to you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let not your hearts be troubled, Neither 
let them be afraid. Someone pointed out something uh, this month that I've never noticed before, and as I said earlier, I think I've watched Charlie Brown Christmas every year of my life, that Linus, he starts with this passage. He goes on to the next passage, which is about the angels visiting the shepherds in the field. And uh, the, when the angels show up, the shepherds, it says, are filled with, they're terrified of these angels. And the angel says to the shepherds, fear not. And when Linus is reading that thing on the little school auditorium, he drops his blanket when he says, fear not. And, and the, the guy that came up with the peanuts, Charles Schultz, was a Christian. And this pastor said, what he's saying is that Jesus is here and you don't need to be afraid anymore. And that's a message that's worth us taking from Christmas. I'm going to finish with a quote from Victor Hugo that a pastor um, that I follow puts out um, now and again on Twitter, usually at night when he knows we're on Twitter because we're restless. Um, and this quote is, is this, Have courage for the great sorrows of life and patience for the small ones. And when you have laboriously accomplished your daily task, go to sleep in peace. God is awake. Father, thank you for your reminder in this Christmas story and the way that Luke has recorded this for us. Um, then when it seems like everything is out of control, um, when it seems like there's no shot, when it seems like your plan is a plan that makes absolutely no sense to us, that you are in complete control in the fullness of time, when the time was just right, the time that you had planned um, for all time, Jesus came. Uh, Jesus brought order into chaos. He brought light into darkness. And he has done that in our lives, and he will do that in our lives. God, help us to, to stop thinking and striving uh, for control that we think is going to bring rest to our souls, Lord. Help us to stop, keep going down that path. Lord, and help us to go down a path which is coming to you and being reminded of all that you've done in the past and the promises you've made about the future, Lord, and let you bring peace into our present by casting our cares on you, knowing um, by, by the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus and as much as anything, knowing the great love that our Father in heaven has for us. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name.